Well, it is uh, baseball playoffs, as some of you know, and um, and uh, funny exchange I have to tell you about on Facebook. My mother, who lives in St. Louis, many of you probably already know, on Facebook she wrote on the Jacobs Well Facebook page, "Go Cardinals," and uh, Adam responded to it saying, "This." message should be flagged as inappropriate. And so, which I thought was a a really good comeback. And uh, I won't tell you who I'm rooting for. I'm actually pretty divided, but I did grow up in St. Louis. So uh, I will probably be happy whoever wins, to be honest with you. So, uh, but we did grow up in a baseball family, a family that loved baseball. My older brother, Richard, especially loved baseball. He had all these baseball cards uh, just thoroughly enjoyed it. And one of his favorite players was a guy, and this is a quiz I want to see if you know, a guy nicknamed Charlie Hustle. Any of you guys know who was nicknamed Charlie Hustle? Pete Rose. Very good. One of his favorite players was Pete Rose. And Pete Rose was an amazing baseball player. Uh, he broke, uh, I think it was, 10 major league records, including Ty Cobb's all-time hit record. Uh, he was just absolutely amazing. And he was surely going to be put into the Hall of Fame. But something happened, and many of you know what happened to Pete Rose. If you're older than 25, you probably know. Pete Rose was found gambling while he was managing the Cincinnati Reds. He was never, uh, I guess you'd say, convicted, but he said, you know what, I will walk away from the game if you don't press this issue any further. So he did that. And Pete Rose has had to wait out Baseball. He has not been able to re-enter as a manager or even to be considered for the Major League Hall of Fame because this was against the code of conduct for the Major League Baseball. He actually said at one time, quote, People have to understand, I wish this would have never happened, but I can't change it. It happened. And sitting here in my position, you're just looking for a second chance. Second chances are awesome, aren't they? (laughs) Aren't you so glad that your family gives you second chances when you mess up, that work gives you second chances when you mess up? You know, maybe you've had a chance where you really bombed a test and somehow the teacher gave you a second chance to do makeup homework and things things like that. Well, it's been said of Genesis 9 that it is God giving the world a second chance. It is a recreation of the world. And we'll look at that and we'll see that as we read this, God really focuses on three of the major relationships that we have in our life. Our relationship with the earth, which I know sounds funny, but we'll explore that. Our relationship with each other and our relationship with the Lord. And so we'll focus on those three relationships today. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 9. It's on page 6 in the Red Bible, if that's what you are reading today. And we will read Genesis 9, verse 1 through 17. Let's read Genesis 9, 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. 
But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came off of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. God, we come to your text and just immediately see your grace, Lord, and your bow that you have hung in the clouds. God, we pray today as we see creation 2.0 that you would help us understand what it looks like to live as a follower of Christ, one who has been redeemed by God's work on our behalf. Lord, help us, transform us this day. In Christ's name, amen. So you've seen how the story has progressed. If you remember, God created Adam and Eve in the garden, and everything was very good. They sinned and rebelled against God. Uh, Fast forward in Genesis 6, God sees that the wickedness of man's heart is evil all the time and it grieves God in his heart. He repents that he has made man. And then in Genesis 7, God sends his justice through a flood, but shows grace to Noah and his family, shows them favor by giving them an ark to be sheltered from God's justice. And then in Genesis 9, we see God recreating the world, reestablishing it reestablishing the relationships we have with the earth, reestablishing the relationships we have with each other, and reestablishing relationships we have with himself. And so those are the three things we're going to look at today. Uh, As we turn there, I just want to note, I listened to a sermon by Tim Keller on this. It's in the bulletin there that was very helpful. And so if you hear something smart, it probably came from him. I just don't want to take credit for it. So... Um, But first we see how God reestablishes our relationship with the earth. Look in verse 1 with me, if you would. It said, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, if you are somewhat familiar with the Bible, this probably sounds very familiar uh, from Genesis chapter 1. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them this same creational mandate. Let me read it to you, Genesis 1.28, I believe will be up here as well. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, in same words right here, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We see that in creation and here, our relationship with the environment, with the world, with the earth that God has created is something that's important to him. You know, we see even more explicitly how he talks about how we are to give dominion, how we are supposed to exercise dominion over the creatures of the earth. Look in verse 2 with me. He says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon the beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. We see this is extremely true. All you have to do is go and visit a zoo, right? When you go to the zoo, you see who has dominion. It's the one with the keys, right? Not the ones in the cages. It's the one with the keys. And so God has given us dominion over the animals. It's quite amazing because we're not the biggest of the animals, but God has given us the wisdom and the dominion to rule over them. He moves on. Verse 3. He says, every moving, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So God tells Noah that before you were a vegetarian, before you ate plants, but now I am giving you T-bone steak, right? And Noah goes, amen, right? You get to have chicken sandwiches. You get to have hamburgers. You get to have all these things. And Noah's like, yes, this is so good, right? But God even... God even, uh, what's God kind of uh, hedges that in, hedges in our dominion over them. Look in verse 4, he goes on and he says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Now we look at that and we say, what does that mean? That is a really weird statement. We shouldn't eat flesh with its blood, that we have to drain its blood because it has life in it. Well, Leviticus 17, 14 is very helpful in us understanding this passage. It says, For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. God reminds us here that even though we've given been given dominion over the creatures, even though God has said you can now eat these creatures, you can hunt them and you can eat them and you can enjoy them. It does not mean that we can abuse them because they are still sacred, because they're created by God, because God has given them life. One of the ways that we see how important these animals are is God actually makes a covenant, not only with Noah, but through Noah to the animals, to the whole earth, which is absolutely amazing because God's covenant is a promise of salvation. And so we see here, not once, not twice, but six times he covenants with the creation, with the animals, with the earth, with the land. I'll just point out one of them to you. If you look in verse nine, 
He says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And then it goes on. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. And then God says this over and over and over again, just in this small passage that we have seen. And this is mind-blowing that God would have such a high view of the creatures that he has given us dominion over. And what he is promising them is that he will protect them from the consequences of sin. You know, it's not that the creatures sinned before the flood. It was man's sin that caused their destruction. You see, our sin has an effect on the environment. Our sin Our selfishness causes us to corrupt creation, to not steward it wisely, but to abuse it and to take advantage of it. And God is warning us against that here because it is important to him. I went online and looked at the Wisconsin DNR mission statement, and it has kind of six sort of parts to it. But the first part says this, that their mission is to protect and enhance our natural resources, our air, land, and water, our wildlife, fish and forest, and the ecosystem that sustains all life. When we read things like this, Christians can say, Amen, absolutely. We need to steward God's creation wisely because animals are given value by God. The earth is given value by God. But then the mission statement goes on and you see there's a divergence between their primary motivation, really the world's primary motivation, and Christian's motivation. It says, and in this partnership, consider the future and generations to follow. And so the primary reason for the world, why we should help the, 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 uh, the ecosystem, why we should protect nature, is for our own benefit and for the benefit of our children. Now, this is certainly important that we would leave less of a footprint so that others could enjoy God's creation. But this is not the primary motivation for us. For those who know Christ, for those who know that God cares about the earth, values the animals, we do it because we know it is valuable to God. We do it because God has given value to creation. And so we do it to worship God, to enjoy God, and as stewards of God's creation. And so God calls us to a different relationship with the earth, not to use it and to abuse it, but to steward it wisely. God also, in this recreation story, reminds us of how we should relate to people. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. For his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. In commenting on this, Tim Keller points out that there was a time uh, not so long ago when people's lives had a different value. Uh, If you were a poor peasant and you killed a king, you were going to be executed. But if you were a king and you executed a peasant, you may get a slap on the wrist or a fine, but that would be it. And so the value of life was different depending on your social status. But God is totally blowing that conception out of the world. In a way, he is saying there is only one currency for life. And it's not money. It's not a slap on the wrist. 
The currency for life is life because all humans have value and dignity. And he gives this to the government as the biblical story develops to to carry out his justice, to trade a life, not manslaughter, but murder for execution. We see he sets up in the Old Testament these cities of refuge in which people who have killed another person would run to these cities of refuge so they, they could go through a fair trial. And if it was involuntary manslaughter, they would live in that city of refuge. But if they had murdered someone maliciously, then they would be executed. God says there is a currency, life for life. And it isn't because God thinks so little of human life, but it's because God thinks so much of human life. You may remember before the flood, there was all of this violence all over the earth, rape and murder, and there was very little to restrain it. But God intervenes here and he says, listen, life is so precious to me that I'm going to set up a system through the government in which life can be taken to preserve life, not to take it away. And so God God says that life has its own currency because it is absolutely valuable to him. He goes on to explain why human life is even so much more important than animal life. Look in verse 6 with me. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The reason why man is so valuable to God is because each and every one of us are made in the image of God. What that means exactly has been discussed, but we are made in God's image. We have a soul. We are created to worship. We are given dominion over the world. We are created in the image of God. You know, this uh, last week, I got home early one night or one day and, and my middle son, Caleb, was still sleeping. And so I went up and I laid down in bed next to him and I just looked and I studied him for about 15 minutes, looking at his face, seeing how he breathes, seeing his puffy cheeks. You know, I love it when kids are sleeping because they're so peaceful, you know. They're not breaking something. Or... But it's just so amazing just to sit and watch your own child. I mean, if I did that with another kid, it would be creepy, right? But with my kid, it's beautiful. And the reason why it's so beautiful, because this is a kid made in my own image. It's a kid that God had made, and it is an absolute miracle looking at this child. See, I love all of your kids, but my kids are unique. They have a unique love from me. And what God tells us is that he loves all of creation, but humanity is absolutely unique, that he has a special love for us. A special dignity has been given to us that wasn't given to all of creation. All of us are made in the image of God. And so this application is much further than do not murder. This applies to how you would treat your neighbor. How would you treat people, whether they are rich or whether they are poor, whether they are Republican, whether they are Democrat, whether they can benefit you or whether they would benefit you not at all? whether they are Christian or whether they are Muslim, all of them are created in the image of God. And we are to love them and serve them, no matter how they look, no matter how they smell, no matter how they can benefit you or not benefit you, no matter what their social status is, no matter what their employment is, 
They are image bearers of God. And so we are not called to serve and to love people according to who they are in themselves, but who they are because God has created them in his own image. And so our relationship with others is to value them as image bearers of God. And so the question is, do you value people around you? Do you value those around you who maybe don't fit your personality type or your social economic status? Do you value your friends and your family? Do people of a diverse range want to be around you because they understand the love of God when you speak to them, when you listen to them? Do they feel the value that they have because they're image bearers of God, regardless of how nice they are or how mean they are or what religion they are? Do they understand that they are valuable because they are made in the image of God? And so God even is restoring our relationship with other people. But finally, and most importantly, he is restoring our relationship with himself. In fact, the first two, a restored relationship with the earth and with people is not even possible without a restored relationship with the Lord. God works out his redemption with us through covenants. A simple definition of covenant, and there are many out there that are correct um, because it's so complex complicated in one way and so simple in another but one that i have for you is a covenant is a saving agreement between god and his people and it comes with promises and stipulations so probably the best illustration of a covenant that we have that is very tangible is the covenant of marriage in which two parties promise themselves to one another and those parties come with stipulations that they would be faithful to one another and that the covenant would be broken if they are unfaithful. Well, this is what a covenant is, and God institutes these covenants. We're actually going through this in the LAMP seminary class, and so if you have any questions, feel free to ask those students. But there are two major covenants throughout history. First is a covenant of works that God establishes with Adam. And he says, upon your perfect obedience... I will walk with you forever. You will have everlasting life and you will never die. And we know how that covenant went, right? Adam ate the forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. They broke God's covenant and death swept over the earth. Man, animal, nature, everything. But God doesn't stop there. God also brings a covenant of grace. And he gives this to people throughout the biblical Story. First, he gives it to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 when he promises the remnant of a Savior that will come to deliver them. We also see it here in Noah, as we'll explore it more in a little bit, but also Abraham and Moses and David. And finally, and most importantly, the new covenant of grace with Jesus. And all of these are God's one covenant of grace given out to separate people throughout time, expanding on the previous covenant. But God shows his grace to us through his covenants of grace. And in this particular story, God condescends and makes a covenant with Noah and the people and the world, and he gives a symbol, right? Many of you probably know what that is from children's Sunday school. But symbols and covenants are extremely important. You know, we look over here at 
the, the juice and the bread. And that is a covenant sign to us, reminding us of Christ's death on our behalf, of God's provision of salvation. In the same way, the rainbow that God has given to us is a sign of our salvation. Look with verse 12 in me. We'll see that, and, and what we'll see first is that the rainbow is a covenant sign of God's peace, but it's also a covenant sign of God's justice. First, let's look and see how the rainbow is a sign of God's peace. Verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And then he gives the sign of this covenant that points to this promise. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. If you look in some other translations, this in verse 13, it will actually translate it rainbow and not bow because it's a rainbow. But the importance of seeing that it is actually a bow is very valid for us to understand. You see, throughout the Old Testament, this word is translated many, many times. In almost every instance, it is translated as a war bow or as a hunting bow. You know, like you pull an arrow back and you release it and it goes. Maybe not a compound bow, but it's a bow that shoots. It's associated with murder, with killing. And what we learn here is that God says, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. I have hung it up. No longer will I seek justice on the whole earth and flood it. I have hung up my war bow. I think of a great prize fighter who's done with his career, right? And he says, I have hung up my gloves, right? I'm done fighting. God says, I have hung up my bow. And so now there is peace. Never again will I flood the earth. And so he gives that promise that he will never again cut off life from the earth by the waters of the flood. Now, the question for us is, why would God do this? Why would God hang up his war bow? Is it because creation 2.0 works so well? Because humanity is so good now? Look with me in 821, if you would. And so just the previous chapter, it's still on page 6, verse 21 of chapter 8. He says this, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because man will be perfect. No, because of man, for the intentions of his man's heart is evil from his youth. This means that God promises deliverance and salvation for us, not because we are good, but despite our badness, because he is good, because in his heart is love. For us. And so God doesn't only hang up his bow, God redirects his bow. And this is how we see that the rainbow is also a covenant sign of justice, not only a covenant sign of peace, but a covenant sign that God will be just for our sin. Never again will he flood the earth in justice, but he will carry out his justice in another way. If you look at the rainbow, yes, it is a reminder that God has hung up his bow, that he never again will flood the earth, but the bow is still strong. The bow is still arced. But notice that the bow is not pointing at earth, right? Wouldn't that be kind of scary if the bow was pointing at earth? You know, kind of like, I won't hurt you if you mess up. 
right? But it's pointed down at us, just waiting for it to shoot like a gun held to our head. If we mess up, something's going to happen. But God says this is a covenant of grace. And where does the bow point? The bow does not point at you and me. The bow points into the heart of heaven. God is going to carry out his justice on himself. There's a story of a man who lived in Korea in 4th century AD, and he had two sons. The elder son was a good kid, right? He was just, he was right, he was good. Uh, He became chief justice of the land. The younger son was a rebel. Uh, He was a thief. Uh, He was a murderer. The older son had come to the younger son many times and said, listen, give up your ways. This isn't the way to go. But he would would dismiss his admonitions and go on with this harmful lifestyle. Well, one day the younger son finally was charged with a crime that was punishable by death. And he was brought before his brother, the chief justice, to undergo sentencing. And everyone expected that the chief would be unjust, that he would let his brother go or give him simply a slap on the hand. But he wasn't. He was completely just. And he ordered his brother, who he loved very much, to be executed. The morning of the execution, the older brother, the chief justice, comes and tells his little brother, let's swap places. The little brother agrees, thinking that surely they would not execute the chief justice of the land. And so the younger brother takes off, he climbs up the hill, and he looks over the city, seeing what's going to happen to his older brother. To his horror, they executed the older brother, the chief justice. And so he runs down the hill, and he tells the soldier, he says, listen, This is my name. I was the one who was supposed to be executed. And the officer replied, there is now no sentence outstanding for anyone by that name. God is our chief justice. We are all guilty of sin, all deserve punishment. But God God is not only our chief justice, God is also our justifier. We studied this in Bible study this week in the men's and women's study that God is both just and justifier for those who trust in Jesus Christ. You see, God didn't only give his justice, he also satisfied his justice. God became man in Jesus Christ, took on our sin, took on our justice, our punishment, and paid for it in full at the cross. You see, Jesus Christ came and died in my place, in your place, so that we could live for God, that we could be free, that we could have a renewed relationship with God. You see, Jesus got the arrow of God's wrath that we could have the bow of God's peace. And so God not only uses this symbol of the rainbow to to show his universal grace to all humanity, but also his saving grace to those who trust in Jesus Christ. You know, we said that the story of Noah is a second chance story, which is true. God is restarting over with creation. But the difference between the first chance and the second chance is that the first chance was contingent on the obedience of humanity. But the second chance is contingent on the work of God. Look with me in verse 14. And we'll wrap it up here. 
It says, God says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. I will remember my covenant. You see, it isn't up to you or to me to save ourselves. God satisfies the requirements for both parties of this covenant. He is both just and justifier. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life we should have lived and died the death we should have died that God could have a relationship with us. And so as we leave and we see a rainbow in the, in the, in the, in the sky, excuse me, there is a great reminder that God has given his universal grace to never flood the earth, but also his saving grace by sending Jesus Christ to endure the arrow of God's wrath that we could get the bow of his peace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have sent Christ for us. Thank you that the bow does not point towards us, but it points to yourself, points to the heart of heaven that we no longer have to fear your judgment. We know in Romans it says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is because Christ has taken our condemnation upon himself and paid for it in full. And we praise you for that, God. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.